All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. As you all know, I'm Dean. I'll be your conversational tour guide tonight. And as promised, we have another phenomenal show lined up for you. So tonight we're going to be joined by Chief Roseanne Richel, retired. She's going to be sharing some of her leadership lessons. She's going to be talking about her journey. We're going to touch upon diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Roseanne up. Roseanne, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that um, you know Sunday's a busy night for a lot of folks, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time out to join us and share some of your knowledge and wisdom with us. Yeah, I'm uh, honored to be on your show. I think that this is fantastic. I love good, difficult conversations. Um, exactly what the name is, difficult conversations. So I'm happy to be here and and let's do it. Let's let's have these conversations. All right, so let, let's get started. So let's let's let people understand a little bit about you and and what your background is. So tell us, where'd you grow up? How did you grow up? So I grew up in the in Sacramento, California. I grew up in the South area, the proverbial South area, where I had to kind of fight my way through school, bully, jump, you know, the whole thing. I didn't mm-hmm. have that silver spoon in my mouth, so I had to kind of work my way through uh, those dynamics. But I knew early on, I always had a calling to help people. Uh, I guess, you know, ironically enough, if you think about it, all the way back to elementary school when I was a crossing guard, I thought that was the coolest thing, right? Holding the stop sign, had the little hat on and everything. So I, I've i had that in my gut my whole life. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I knew there was four things, cop, paramedic, doctor, or veterinarian. And fortunately for me, I got the opportunity to uh, live out two of those dreams. I was an EMT for six years prior to becoming a law enforcement officer for 26 years and retiring at the level of chief. So didn't have it uh, super easy growing up. Had to put in the work to get to where I am today, but I wouldn't trade it for the world it, because it's who I am today. So, so it helped shape you. So how old were you when you transitioned from the EMT service to being in law enforcement? So I started as an EMT when I was 19. So pretty much out of high school. Um, Well, I graduated high school at 17, but did a couple jobs here and there. And then uh, went to school. I had tested back in in that time, that was late 80s, early 90s. I had tested four years straight to become a cop. And there was not, you know, budgets were cut. If you didn't know anybody, they were hiring onesies and twosies at a time. But uh, four years I tested and I finally put myself through the academy. I was working four jobs at the time. Uh, one full time as a as a EMT. I was working 24 hour shifts Friday and Sunday, going to the academy Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, all day Saturday. And then part time as a security guard at a hospital, as an emergency dispatcher um, <clears throat> and a reserve police officer. Wow. So it, it was no easy feat, but I knew it's what I wanted to do. That, that's amazing. So you went through unsponsored? So so you weren't getting paid by a department when you went through? No, not at all. I, I paid for everything. Wow. That is a serious level of, of desire and want to in order to do that. So you get on the job. Tell me about your first department, what that was like, and were there many people that looked like you? Well, my first department as a reserve officer was kind of, it, it was good and bad. Right. It was great. I finally got the job. It was bad. They didn't hire from their reserves. So uh, which is sad because that's the area I grew up in. And that's the department that I saw all the time. And that's the department I wanted to work for. Uh, But after I went to the academy, I got hired on full time across the river. We have the Sacramento River that splits uh, Sacramento from another city. And so I got hired on at that city and it was phenomenal. It was a small, uh, you know, about 50 member organization. It wasn't a large organization which as you know, most law enforcement agencies are small to medium, not many are large agencies. And one of the things that I always wanted to do is work canine. And I actually got the opportunity to do that, put myself through uh, canine school, put forth the effort, had to buy my own dog once I got the blessing to be a canine handler. Uh, same pattern, I, you know, when I reflect back now on my life, it's the same pattern. I've always put myself out there, paid, put myself through school and done all, did all those things to make myself more marketable and to educate myself. And so I got to work canine. I got to, uh, at this 
department. I was there for five years. I got to be a field training officer, an officer in charge, department recruiter, and on our street crimes unit all concurrently, um, mostly because I put myself out there and I wanted to do those things. But at the five-year mark, you know, it, working in a small agency, <clears throat> I really had to decide, do I, I felt like I wanted to start looking at promotion, but the promotions were one and two at a time, if at all that. And so I put in to go back across the river to the Sacramento area where I was and um, put in for the two large organizations there and the sheriff's department picked me up. And I got to tell you, I wouldn't change that for the world. That was the best decision I made in my law enforcement career. Um, now, why is that? What made it such a, such a great move for you? Because I think it one, uh, most of these organizations I was at, my values aligned with those, right? To, to serve the public. So there was that aspect of it, but there was also the ability to uh, enhance my career. You know, like I said, the other agency, if I was to get hired as a sergeant, you know, it, it would take forever and they'd only select one. Go to a large uh, sheriff's department and they're promoting, you know, 10, 20 sergeants at a time. Plus the diversity of assignments was a lot more in a sheriff's department than a municipality. Um, you know, you're either patrol or detectives and like I said, street crimes and things like that at a sheriff's department, you know, you have, like I was at the airport, uh, <clears throat> you have corrections, you have patrol, you just have so many more assignments that you can put in for if you want to. And, you know, every two or three years, it's like you're, you're recharged again. Right. You're not behind that desk for 30 years doing the same thing. So it was just it was a good match for me and I wouldn't change it for the world. I, I love that organization. I'm very loyal to that organization. That, see, that's amazing because, you know, one of the things that I heard you talk about is divert. You said diversity of assignment, which is um, a, not a way that you people usually think about diversity. People usually when you hear diversity, you think about different skin colors, different um, ethnicities, different sexual orientations. But diversity of thought processes and diversity of routine is something that's important too. So how has your diversity of routine made you a better candidate to be a leader in an organization? Just by the mere nature of seeing different, seeing the way different things happen, like in corrections, how you uh, handle corrections and how you interact with inmates and the medical staff and those different, uh, that atmosphere is much different than how you handle patrol or how you handle detectives. You know, in patrol, patrol is very dynamic. You know, if you're, if you get into it, your cover might not be two, three, four minutes away and you're on your own to protect yourself, protect the community. In a correctional facility, if you have somebody go haywire on you, you, you got the whole jail descending, everybody descending on you within a couple of minutes. And so, the diversity of assignments really kind of gives you that that breadth of knowledge that if you do decide to climb the ranks, then you see things from all these different angles. And you take if you're self-aware enough, and that's why you're truly doing these things is to better yourself and better the organization and better the profession. You have you're going to uh, be able to take all those experiences and be a better law enforcement officer because you're going to see the perspective and different views. So perfect segue into what something so that we talked about earlier. We talked about how you have to change your view of your profession. And again, folks, this is we're we're both law enforcement by trade, but these lessons we're talking about can be applied anywhere. They have a universal adapter. So if you are a first line supervisor in law enforcement, you have one view. So talk to talk to me a little bit about that view. So we talked about being a sergeant, which is a first line supervisor in law enforcement. How was your view as assignment? Uh, uh, excuse me. How was your view of the job as a sergeant different than as you gained rank? Uh, and I'll use this analogy, and law enforcement folks will get this, but uh, people that aren't in law enforcement, hopefully, you can find a way to fit it into your world. But you know, when you're a first line supervisor and you respond to a call and there's a barricaded subject, you're looking at the barricaded subject and the building or wherever they're barricaded. That is your primary uh, responsibility. That's your goal is to resolve that situation safely. 
you're also looking at the, the perimeter of that to make sure, you know, do you need to evacuate people? What do you need to do to make sure not only is um, the person that's barricaded, again, that's resolved safely, but what if that person's armed and now they start shooting and now you got to be responsible for where those bullets are flying? What does that look like in close proximity to those folks that are around you? So that is your, your goal as a first line supervisor. You know, what are you doing for that situation? Now, as you climb the ranks, you have more responsibility. And for me, when I became chief, that was a situation within the city where I was uh, in one of our contract cities. I was a chief of police and in the sheriff's department, I was a chief deputy. So I had two different uh, at two different times. So I had uh, that perspective. But as a chief or somebody of higher rank, I see that situation as a singular event. But how does that uh, play out in the public? The reputation for uh, the organization, the reputation for the, the city or the county, uh, what are your stakeholders or constitu constituents look at you? Are you living up to what they believe public safety should be? What does that look like on a national level if it's an incident like with what we've seen, you know, with uh, the Ferguson case and um, here locally, Stephon Clark in Sacramento or you know, George Floyd, all of those things, you know, whatever happens on the East Coast translates to the West Coast, whatever, they all translate sure. across the nation. So that's one of the things as a chief that you're looking out for is how do you resolve that? And how do you let the, the public know that you are doing the right things and that you are looking into this and that you are handling it, handling it in a situation that provides trust and transparency? I mean, transparency is a big word, and we've heard that over and over and over in the more recent past. Well, so while we're on that line, that's that's what I would call a classic crisis of leadership, or it's a potential for that, where, again, you have to balance the public's expectation of law enforcement. You have to balance th what they're seeing and their biases, but you also have to maintain the trust of the people inside your building, too. So... How difficult is that for you to get the rank and file to to buy into what you're what you're trying to do the mission while also balancing the trust and legitimacy piece that you can only get from having buy-in from the public? I think the number one thing you do is provide a voice to people, whether it's internal procedural justice or external procedural justice, of those four tenets, voice is important. If somebody feels like they have the ability to direct their future and they have buy-in in insofar as that they feel like they're heard, uh, I think that elicits trust and you have to have follow through. You know, you can't just speak the words and then not follow through. Uh, we see that all the time. I mean, my God, look at politicians. Let's call it like it is. They make all these promises and then when the real, when something happens, you know, you just can't, you can't fulfill everybody's wishes and promises. And so you got to be very cognizant of that, that if you're going to put that out there, either internally or externally, that you have to build that trust. And you build that trust by providing voice and by being fair in your assessment of a situation and how you deal with those situations. It, it, it's it's a delicate balance, no, no, no doubt. Um, it's, you talk about you know procedural fairness and procedural justice, and that is uh, something that I think most agencies are striving towards right now, and they're striving to be better at it. I mean, it's like anything else. Some some are good, some are okay, and some really need work, but everybody could do a little bit better. How do you provide that? Is it is it possible to have all of your citizens feel as if they're on the right end of procedural justice? If I could give you the right the answer for that, I'd be a gazillionaire right now, right? <laughs> That's what we're all striving to do. And I think really what happens is you try again to be as forthcoming with what your role is as a law enforcement agency and the situations that you find yourself in and that you assure people that you're going to look into that. You are going to address the matter and it's just not lip service. And granted, you know, now with body cameras and everything and, and people holding their cell phones up and you have, you know, instantaneous snapshot of what has occurred before really the investigation's even been.
been completed, let alone the call has resolved itself. People are putting that out there. So law enforcement agencies are finding that now they're having to play catch up and they're trying to get the body camera footage out there. And again, these are snapshots of very dynamic situations. And the way you deal with those is they're going to happen. It's not if it's a matter of when, you know, coming to a, a city or county near you soon. hundred percent. So you have to make sure you start building relationships before those crisis situations happen. So that when you get in front of people, you've already built that trust. And, you know, I follow John Maxwell. I uh, got a leadership coaching certification from him. And he talks about three things. People need to know you, like you, and trust you before they'll follow you. And the fact. When, you, when you think about that, you got to get ahead of these things. You got to, you, you can't play catch up with them. And uh, especially because of social media and the fact that, you know, a 30 second or three second clip for all that, for that matter, puts out just enough for people to make up the story in their mind. So with that, with that being said, Roseanne, are you in favor of releasing body cam footage earlier? Because you, you, you hit, you touched on something perfectly earlier where as in law enforcement, I don't think that we do a fantastic job of getting control of the narrative where we're almost always in a defensive posture. So would you, is, are you talking about maybe like, for example, if something is so obvious that the law, that law enforcement acted properly, but you know that it's going to be foreseen a different way, are you in favor of maybe releasing that body cam footage right away? Or like, where would, where would you like to see law enforcement go with that? See, I don't think that there's a, a right and wrong or a definitive answer with that, because again, I think every situation is dynamic every law enforcement agency handles and has their own policies and procedures and they handle, uh, you know, every community is different in how they view law enforcement. So I think really uh, it's up to the, the organization head, the, the sheriff, the chief, or whoever their executive body is, is to figure out what is the best situation for this. And again, because a lot of these are going to have lawsuits attached to them. So yep. it's not like you're trying to hide information. You also have due process, right? So are you putting information out there? You know that attorneys are going to bring all of that information into the lawsuit. And I get it. We try so hard to get ahead of it and say, no, look, this is what we did. We did this good. We did this right. But I guarantee you any good attorney, no matter whether uh, they're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, is going to look at that situation and present that case the way they want. So I can't say I'm, you know, I'm all about being transparent, but again, I think you have to decide the best time and the manner in which you release that information with all these other considerations at hand. It's, a, it's definitely a difficult decision because if you release it too early, like you said, you jeopardize your case. If you don't, re if you wait too long, now you've lost that trust and legitimacy out of your constituency. You well, know, yeah, I, I think it's tough. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, because all of a sudden, because you didn't re release it soon enough, now it gives the appearance that you're scrubbing the information from that, that you're, you're manipulating the, de uh, the, the video or manipulating the information so that it's in favor of law enforcement. And so it, that's why I say it's kind of a no-win situation. And I think each situation is should hold as its own because every situation is its own situation and they're all dynamic. But I think that you have to uh, have some sort of policy or procedure in place for how you handle that information. A hundred percent. So folks, again, if you're tuning in late, I'm here with Roseanne Richel. Uh, please, if you have any comments or anything that you would like for us to touch upon, go ahead and throw those in the chat. So building from there, what are some of the challenges you faced in your ascension to leadership? We spoke, you know, when we spoke off, off camera about this, we talked a lot about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and what that means. So talk to us about some of your journey and some of the roadblocks that you hit that you feel might have been um, maybe geared towards you and not maybe some of your, your uh, comrades. So for me, yeah, I started my journey back in the late 80s and um, 
you know, with law enforcement, you have to go through a series of testing to become an officer. You have to go through psychological, medical, physical, test, uh, written test, all of those things. But back in the late 80s, uh, you know, I'm a proud member of, a, of the LGBTQ community. Been that way my whole life. You know, not ashamed of it. It's who I am. Um, and being a female. So I've had kind of both of those to contend with in a heavily uh, male predominant profession. But back in the day when I was getting hired, you know, being gay was still a psychological disorder. You know, so on my background test, I had to put, when they ask if you have a spouse, I had to put the old, I have a roommate kind of thing. And I laugh at it now, but back then I was very fearful that if they found out I was gay, that I wouldn't get the job. So I really had to dance around that issue. Now, granted, fast forward to now, and it doesn't, you know, diversity, inclusion, gender or uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, all those things are now finally being talked about in the open and, and not so stigmatized. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was the majority of uh, my team, no matter if I was in patrol or wherever I was, I was either the only female or just a small handful of uh, females. And every person has to prove themselves, but I felt like you had to go an extra mile to prove yourself as a female. Understood, understood. And, And when you're going the extra mile, did that rub some people the wrong way? If you had to be, if you felt you needed to be a little more assertive or, or, or what have you, how was that perceived? Well, sometimes now that was, that carried over to your being arrogant, right? So where's, where's the balance in that where you're just trying to do the best you can because it's coming from your, a place of your heart and you're trying to fit in like everybody in this world wants to do. They want to fit in somewhere, but you're trying to do what, 99.9% of law enforcement officers come into this profession to do is help others. Right. And so, uh, you know, I'd been hit on by field training officers to the point where I had to tell them, I don't think my wife would be happy with this discussion. And then that shut them down really quick. <laughs> right. I didn't, uh, I didn't get selected for a motor position. Um, because I was a female and I'd later found out that the, individual who made the selections, the team leader, uh, didn't want any females and he didn't say it in a nice way on his team. Best part about that, listen, I could have ran to fair employment and filed a harassment or uh, discrimination case, but instead I held my, my head up and I said, you know, I'm not going to let that person define me. I'm not, I don't need to do that. I've got other opportunities ahead of me. Eight months later, he was ousted from his position and the team asked for me to come over and take his position. So really, so I became the first female motor for our department and in doing so taking his position simultaneously. So sometimes you actually get to see karma play out. And this was one of those cases and that situation and that story is worth way more than any monetary value I could have got from the the, uh, organization or the County cutting me a check. 100% 100% and you and the un the unintended or unexpected benefit was I'm sure that you gained some respect from some of your co-workers by handling it the way you did well the whole team or maybe you was, didn't. the whole team was men mm-hmm. right so they asked for me to be the one to come back and lead the team so I mean that says a lot right there and I was very proud to do that um that's why I say, I mean, I, I don't, listen, I know a lot of women, I, I know a lot of people face discrimination and hostile work environments in their career, especially in this profession. And how you handle it obviously is up to you, how you reconcile that in your heart and in your head. For me, I felt that was the best way to do it. And I, again, wouldn't change that for the world. I love that. So we got a couple um, comments slash questions in the chat. Let's go ahead and address those. So Johnny, a friend of both of ours and a difficult conversation veteran, she says it is an incredible challenge to create transparency, vulnerability, and authentic conversations with community members and balance the priorities and expectations internally and externally. So do you agree? 
disagree in either way, tell me why. Well, I absolutely agree. Not just because Johnny's one of my near and dear friends, but she also retired from a large organization in California as an assistant chief. So she rose to the ranks and I'm sure as we did that simultaneously, she probably suffered some of the, the fallout of her gender or race or some of those types of things. So, you know, I, I absolutely agree with, with her statement. I mean, it is a balance, you know, you know, you want people to like you as human beings. We want people to like us. But as you become a leader, you can't please everybody because in trying to please everybody, you please nobody. And that's, like that. when, you, and that's when you really start to um, shift your character and who your authentic self is. So it's it's a very difficult thing. But I, I agree. It's it's touch and go sometimes. And, and trying to please everybody, you please nobody. Uh, I'm just going to let you know, you can bill me for copyrights or anything like that. I am going to use that at some point because that is outstanding. So so moving on, Jim has a comment. Jim is one of our uh, fantastic loyal followers. Jim wants to say that did trying to fit into that male-dominated culture and proving you were tough enough affect your view of the stigma attached to mental health treatment at the time? That's an awesome question. So, Jim, that's that's an interesting question because I'll leave it up so you can. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, that's an interesting question because right now what I have going on is is I'm in a master's program that is going to uh, when I finish this, I will be getting my uh, clinical counseling. Certification or my master's, and I'm going to be opening my own practice to deal with mental health in law enforcement with post traumatic stress disorder or any other kind of disorders that have to do with this profession. And so, you know, I didn't look at it as being a male dominated culture, I looked at it as being a field that I was called to serve. And so, I don't know that mental health, even the played a role in it. I just know that I was called to do that job like every, like most people. And so I tried not to fall into being stigmatized or playing into the stigma, uh, stigmatization of mental health or, or any of those things associated with it. So I, I just didn't look at it as I needed to be better than the men. I needed to be better than other women. I just needed to be the best part of me and the best version of myself. All right. Well, let me so let me jump in here and maybe um, build a bridge with this question, because I certainly feel some way about this question. So um, for those of you that are listening uh, via audio, is this your first time? If you can't tell by my voice, I am black. Um, if you are not watching, I am also large on top of that. So I can tell you that there was absolutely a stigma um, where you if you saw something that was tough, something that affected you, you basically kept that under your hat. And you didn't come out and say, hey, listen, like, I saw a dead um, dead body, and it bothered me. There was something about it. It could have been the way it smelled. It could have been the way it was positioned. It could have been the song that was playing on the radio on your way to that call. Like, you don't know what it is that could set you off. And when I first started, I've only been in this game 17 years. And I can tell you when I first started, it was something like you really didn't talk about it. It was expected that you kind of just dealt with it. You tucked it away and you went on and did your job. Where now, I think we as leaders, we do so much better of a job of a job of getting people help, of setting up um, crisis um, crisis talks where people will come in and you can you know you'll have everybody in the room in a, in a in kind of a circle and everybody get a chance to talk about the event and how it affected them and what they saw and what they felt. And I think it's so important that we do that. And um, so I can tell you for me, Jim, um, in general, as a man, it was tough to do. But I also feel being a minority, it was um, it was maybe even tougher to do because I always felt like it's at the beginning that people were kind of looking for a reason to say that I shouldn't be there or a reason to say that, all right, well, he's here, but he can only be a patrol person. So... 
Um, I think that that's a that's a that's a great question. Do you want to respond to any of that? Um, yeah, Roseanne. I, actually, <clears throat> I do. Um, uh, it makes sense, Jim. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, well. correlates to gender, gender, and mental health. I can tell you that listening to what Dean just said, regardless of my gender, I felt the same way. And it wasn't, and it hasn't been until recently that officer wellness, dispatcher wellness, let's not forget the dispatchers and what they go through, uh, organizational wellness, that those are now becoming more open and more talked about. So the stigmatization of not saying something and keeping it suppressed, uh, I feel like it doesn't matter what gender or race you are attached to. If you're in this uh, position or profession, you stuff it down. You go to, uh, God, I can't tell you, countless, countless dead bodies I've seen, not only as an EMT, but also in my law enforcement profession. And uh, as a matter of fact, the city that I was working in as a motor sergeant, I had to move from that city because I went, I could not work and drive around because everywhere I saw and everywhere I went in my head, you saw an intersection. I saw a fatality. You saw yep. a store that you were running up to, to go get something to eat. I saw a fatality. I saw an assault. I saw a stabbing. I saw a homicide. I saw those kinds of things. And then you attach a song to it. You attach a, um, a season to it, you attach all of those. And so for a long, long time, again, that was stigmatized. You suppress that and eventually it's got to come out of you. And I think people are starting to see that now and really starting to address that issue where it's not about making you feel shameful for your feelings. It's about let's heal those feelings. I agree, agree a hundred percent. And I just want to clarify one thing that I said when I said that that's how I felt, or I or I believed that people were looking for that. That was a me problem. That doesn't necessarily that may or may not have been the truth, but I can tell you that was one thousand percent a me problem. Because let's face it, your personal feelings, your biases—that's a you problem. So that's how I felt. But I am not saying that that was necessarily the reality in all cases. So I just want to make sure that I, um, that I specify that, that that was something that I felt internally. But that's very, that's a valid point. Nobody should dismiss how you felt just as nobody should dismiss how I felt. Uh, now, whether those things are attached again to gender or race, I don't know. I have never, I've not walked in your shoes. I've only walked in my shoes, mm -hmm. but nobody should dismiss your feelings. Um, because of that so that's a top week that's another show right we can oh, no, <laughs> no doubt it, 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 it's that. a show that's going to happen too at some point because th that's come up quite a bit with yeah. some of the other shows so um jim thank you so much for the uh the brain busting questions and comments there that's yeah thank you that fit right in the difficult conversation genre so we have a um uh comment from johnny johnny says when we came on in the late 80s it was suck it up buttercup mentality there were so many things that were different, viewed differently, lack of evidence-based research and resources available. I'm so glad that there are so many more investments towards mental health that have occurred in policing and public safety. So amen to that, Johnny. I think that that is a credit to leaders realizing that, hey, listen, like what we're doing isn't working for everybody. So we got we to gotta find some different ways to make sure people aren't burning out and people aren't having what what used to be called like a crack. People aren't cracking up under pressure anymore. Like maybe there's a way to prevent that before it happens, and that can only happen with uh, with leaders recognizing that. What do you think? What do you think, Roseanne? Absolutely. You, that's one of the things. I mean, I just I just did some research last week. I was, we were discussing this topic uh, in one of the classes I'm taking, and one of the research when I was looking through. Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and officers and how they respond to uh, mental well-being, you know, in one of the research papers that I was reading, it, it said that in an officer's career, they, uh, they are involved in a minimum of over 120 critical incidents in their career where the average person might uh, be involved in one. And the suck it up buttercup, I mean, that's the language that was used. Suck it up, buttercup, right? Yep. And 
you go to one of these calls where you see things that only people see on TV. And I'm going to tell you right now, TV does not do any of these things justice because you don't smell, you don't feel, you don't. All the other senses that happen in these situations stick with you the rest of your life. And people don't necessarily see that. And so the, the suck it up buttercup mentality, you know, you have a lot of officers that when they retire, they don't know what to do with themselves. They're on such an adrenaline high every time. They're always at this, this high level of adrenaline that when they retire, they, their bodies physiologically don't know how to handle it. And a lot of them all of a sudden have nothing to do and they end up committing suicide, which is that that's the other thing. But the public doesn't see, I just came from a dead body call and now I'm going to take your vandalism call. I'm still trying to de decompress from the worst thing that you could ever see in life, but yet be compassionate to you have uh, your car has been vandalized. Full well understanding that that's very traumatic for you, but I'm trying to reconcile what I just saw to come and do that. And it's just the reality of the job. It's not that your, your vandalism is any less important. It's just me as a human being, I'm trying to go from call to call to call because what I'm getting is there's 20 calls waiting in the queue. Hurry up, let's go. <laughs> right? so, so, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about, about that end aspect of it because it's true. I think the thing that gets glossed over the most in law enforcement is at the end of the day, there's a human being underneath these badges in these uniforms. And I don't care how much training, how much brainwashing, how much uh, academy BS that you go through you're still susceptible to human emotions and human feelings just like anybody else's. You might have better control over it, but everybody has a day when it is that day for them. And I think that people, if more people understood that, um, I think that we'd be in a bit better place. So moving on from this, there is another question. So Heidi wants to know, do you feel that when you are trying to climb the ladder as a leader in a male-dominated profession, your assertiveness was deemed as just another woman being a witch, air quotation mark, witch. So you touched upon that a little bit earlier, but can you delve a little deeper into that? Absolutely. So that's funny you bring that up, Heidi. Thank you for bringing that question up because Dean and I were talking about that uh, before we started the conversation. And, um, you know, as you start to climb the ladder, you're doing it because you're, you know, for me, I'm a competitive person. I play competitive sports, my, you know, soccer, my whole life. I'm competitive like most people, but I also want to enhance my career. I also want to uh, better myself, better my family. I want to do all those things that most of us want to do as human beings. But what I had found as a female sometimes was backlash from males and females, you know? And so I've always made it a point to, help women up. This is where I got, let me help you get there too. You know, rather than back in the day, there weren't a lot of uh, positions available where women were placed into those. So there was almost a competition, you know, to some fact there still is. I mean, in, across California, uh, women in law enforcement is only at 14%. And I think across the nation, it's less than that. So women representing law enforcement is, is still has to come down a lot. And I was just on a, um, uh, with community colleges, I was just on a webinar as one of the three panelists last week where we talked about women in law enforcement. And if you have an opportunity, go to the 30 by 30 initiative. And it, uh, there's all kinds of information that speaks to women and trying to get at least 30% women in law enforcement by 2030. And in the research, uh, 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 the founders of 30 by 30, they had found that, you know, in, in any cultural situation, if you can at least reach 30%, then that's the tipping point to start to make change in an organization or, or somewhere. So it's a fan, fantastic uh, initiative. I was so proud to be on that. Um, so, so, this, yeah, go ahead. I, so can I redirect you? Cause I want to, I want to know a little bit more about the, the women on women issue that was going on because I don't feel like that's talked about enough. I feel like a lot of times it's always, uh, for example, if we're talking about race type issues, it's always what some other race is doing to another race or what other religion or what other gender is gender. So talk to me about the women on women um, issues that you were having. 
listen, I'll, I'll call it like it is. Women can be brutal to other women. And whether it's because they suffer from low self-esteem themselves, they want to be the, the popular, uh, the mean girl, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes women could be even more brutal towards other women. I think the, the bullying aspect of it is alive and well. Uh, it makes them feel better. You know, so as you start to climb the ladder and, and you become more assertive and you could say the word assertive uh, and people can either interpret that as negative or positive. Right. And if it's negative, then all of a sudden you're arrogant and you're bossy and you're witchy. Right. But there's another another there's a B in front of that. There's all of these things that that you are as a woman. So not only are you fighting that aspect of it, you're, you just shake your head. I mean, I spoke at a women's leadership conference and in one of the evaluations, I was called arrogant. And I really had, first I was a little caught off guard because if the person truly knew me, I, I'm furthest from being arrogant. I mean, I want to help women. I'm, I'm that woman that wants to help you because I know what it's like to uh, have to climb the ladder and not have those doors open or anybody on your side. But then I had to check myself and go, you know what? That's the way this person received me. The rest of them were all, you know, great uh, comments. They were very affirmative. But I had to check myself because initially I got a little miffed. But, but why all the hate? Why? I don't. That's the part I don't understand. Why the hate? Because it's I, I call it the mirror effect. You have to take in the look, take a look in the mirror, and see if you're comfortable with yourself. And if you don't have the capacities or you don't have the skill set or you don't have the confidence or you don't have the compassion to help another person. Or if something has happened to you, so you feel like you need to perpetuate that. Well, I'll show you that happened to me. So I'm going to perpetuate that that rude behavior to the next person. That's a self-awareness issue. And that person needs to look in the mirror. And uh, I love it. But it has happened. And it will happen in long after we're all gone. Yeah. Women and, and, and we've all seen it. Out. You know, we've all seen it. We've seen we've seen new men do that to new men. We've seen new women. We've seen it cross genders. Um, and it doesn't always seem to be rhyme or reason to it. Um, I think a lot of times it has to do with uh, if somebody feels that you are low hanging fruit, you are more likely to be on the wrong end of that. If someone feels that you're a, an easily accessible target that doesn't have the power or the backing to retaliate, then you tend to see that. And that's why some of our newer people um, get treated that way. Uh, well, that's here's, a, that's, here's the go problem. Ahead. If I could just speak to that really quick, Dean. Here's the problem yep. is you have absentee supervisors that either A, don't recognize that another employee is doing that to another employee, or they don't want to deal with that personnel issue or that individual. So they don't address it or they give the blanket admonishment. Okay, everybody, we need to treat everybody uh, fair and nice. No, don't do the blanket admonishment because I'm not the one that's being a jerk to somebody else. Why don't you address that person? So you have weak leaders that don't know how to deal with those issues. And so they allow that behavior to continue under their purview. And uh, I, yeah. I, I love it. And I'm glad you went down that road because one of my old co-workers turned supervisors, um, who's also a half-decent rib cook, he just jumped in. So Chris says, how do you translate leadership in law enforcement to the public sector? So you and you and I, again, we spoke about this piece off, off camera. So talk about how these leadership lessons that we're talking about in these, in these how does it translate over to uh, work outside of law enforcement? Yeah, and thank you for the question, Chris, because, look, leader to me, leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter what organization you work in. And I go back again to the people need to, to know you, like you, and trust you. People want to feel valued and respected. They want to know that they can contribute and they want to contribute. You know, they, they want to be a part of the solution. They want to belong. They want to be respected. All of those things have nothing to do with law enforcement. They have to do with people skills. They have to do with, uh, you know, emotional intelligence, being self-aware, uh, you know, what's your motivation, all those different things that, you know, if they want to know and be a part of the bigger picture and part of the solution. 
So again, take law enforcement out of it. Leadership is about treating people with dignity and respect. And it's about providing people a voice and letting people, and this is the diversity and inclusion piece that Dean and I were talking about earlier. Diversity to me and inclusion isn't just about the color of my skin or my gender. It's about the ability to allow me to be me, to provide input from my experience, from my skills, from my culture, from all of those different things. That's what makes me a value and an asset to an organization, not yes. just the color of my skin or my gender. And I've always spoken to this about the female thing, and I had to let this go. As I promoted, I didn't want to be promoted because one, I met some legislative mandate or some affirmative action uh, legislation. But I knew that at times I might have been promoted because I fell in that category. But the one thing that I made sure I told myself is I was going to come with the requisite skill set. Perfect. You know, I, that's, I was, that's what I was bringing to the table. If you had to check a box, again, I had to let that go. But I guarantee you, I made sure that, that I worked as hard as I could to be the, per, the best person for that position. So I'm going to, I'm going to, so Chris, great question. Jim, thank you. I agree on the preach. I'm going to uh, redirect here. So I want to ask you, how do you handle those backhanded com comments that you heard and like I've heard that this person is only in this position because they belong to a ABC group or ABC gender or they have this color? How do you handle that when you when that gets back to you? Because I'm sure it's never said to you, but I'm sure it, it works its way back because there are no secrets in law enforcement. Right. Well, again, you know, I, I've gotten to the point in my life where I may confront the person, right? There was a time I didn't confront him. I just kind of, uh, just like the whole motor thing, I just kind of washed my hands of it as ignorance, right? That, that person's just ignorant of who they are. But as I've gotten a little older, a little more mature, uh, I've confronted that person I said, Hey, you know, I heard you got the, you believe I got this position because of being female or being gay or being whatever. Um, let's talk about it so I can give you a little bit of my background and, and let you know that shuts people down right away. I didn't say that. What do you mean? That shuts them down right away. Or, you know, you just do your job and you do it well. And most people that come at somebody with that kind of comment, everybody knows it doesn't matter who you are. That's the person that's always going to talk bad about everybody else because they got passed over on a test or they got passed over on something. So they're going to have to find fault that with anybody and everybody. But that's the easiest thing that they can target is your outside appearance. Uh, I love that. So um, while I got you in the pressure cooker, I'm going to turn up the heat a little bit. So that's I cool. want to know. So you said something earlier about tr you have to know, you have to like. So you can trust, right? That what it was, no like trust. Well, let me ask you this. If you know somebody, but you don't like them, can people still trust you? Because I know, I know that I think differently than other people. I, I'm going to admit that I've had supervisors that I might not have cared for personally, but when the chips were down, I trusted they were going to do the right thing. Do you think a lot of people share that mindset or is that rare? I think trusting you know, listen, if you know somebody, that could be good or bad, right? But if you know that they're an awful person to everybody else because they have a character flaw, but you also know that when the chips are down or you're in the heat of the moment that they could bring it, I think, you know, you can trust either way. I think it depends on the individual. Um, but I think that those are three key components, right? Because when you get to know somebody, you, you build that rapport. Rapport is so important. Uh, to developing these relationships. So people build a rapport with you because you're willing to open up about a little bit about you. And, and cops are kind of skeptical and they don't want to give too much information about themselves. But, you know, and then when people like you, they want to be around you. And why would that not fall in, into the category of trust? But I get it. I might not like you because, you know, you are hardcore, hard charger, this is how you see the world. We're going in there. We're taking care of business. I might not like you because of the way you handle it, but I trust that you're not going to send us into danger or you're not going to send us into a situation. I love it. 
So trust can be broken up into components. It doesn't have to be uh, a one-stop shop. It can be almost like a la carte. Like I can trust you in certain circumstances, but maybe not so much in others. Right. I can know you and not like you, but I might have to trust you. Or guess what? If I don't trust you and you're guiding me down something that's immoral or uh, illegal or unethical, then I have a voice to say, no, nope, not interested in going down there. I think I want to do this. And that's one of the problems sometimes with cops is they don't know when to stand up and say, no, that's not that's not working for me. But I guarantee you with all of these lawsuits that are coming down and the, the possibility for, um, uh, gosh, now it escapes, uh, qualified immunity to go away, people are not going to allow other officers to run roughshod over them because they uh, are afraid to say something. Well, that, that's, that's, that's a fact. So Roseanne, we're down to about nine minutes. All right. So there's a couple um, comments in the chat. I'm just going to get them up on the screen real quick and we're going to have to move on from there. So Johnny says emotional intelligence training, speaking about it more openly and having peer services have really opened up the space for growth. I do appreciate organizations like Perf, IACP and podcasts like Supply the why to bring awareness and education. Thank you very much, Johnny. Jim says that uh, and we, when we were talking about different um, ways that, that um, deaths can affect you, he said as far as smell, he had Vicks in his cruiser bag for the last 15 years. So there is a gentleman named Gary that I think you might be familiar with. Me and my sister grew up in a very tough part of Sacramento slash South Sacramento. It was extremely diverse, and it was great for us to learn about different cultures and different struggles for all. She was an amazing athlete. She was an all-star in all sports she played in. She was one of the first females to play Little League in the 70s. She used to pitch, and I was her catcher. Boys would come to bat looking at her as if it was going to be easy until she struck them out. That's great to know, and that is a wonderful uh, wonderful shout-out from uh, what I'm guessing is your brother. All right? so. Yeah. I don't even know. I, I, I guess I now I got to pay him some money or something because I wasn't even <laughs> expecting that. But thanks, Gary, for throwing that out there. Um, you know, he's right. We grew up in a tough neighborhood. I'm I, listen. I got bullied and jumped by a handful of girls on a regular basis, and I don't hate that demographic because of that. Right. As a matter of fact, one. Okay, I got to throw this in there. One of those individuals that jumped me and harassed me all the time. I actually met on graveyard in the middle of the night when she failed to pay a cab driver and he put her under arrest and I got to arrest her and go for a nice little drive with my dog in the back of the car. Cause I transported and we had discussions about the good old days. Oh, comma. You mentioned comma early in the show. That's comma right. coming back full circle. <laughs> it was like, Oh my God, here we are 12 30 in the middle of the night and we meet 20 years later and I'm arresting you. So, <laughs> All right. So, so John says, have you ever stood up for something you believe in and ended up shunned by leadership because of it? And if so, how did you overcome it? So I got to throw a time limit on you for this. Yeah. Can you sum that up in 90 seconds to two minutes? Oh, John, you put me on the spot right there. There's, there's so many different things, but um, again, just standing up for, for being a female and being able to speak, speak your piece and being heard. And again, for women, this is the thing is we tend to talk a lot, but you have to be, uh, you have to know when to say something, what to say and when to say it. If you're always saying something, nobody's going to listen to you. And so that's a lesson that I learned along the way that, um, you know, if you're the only woman in an executive staff and, and you have something to say about everything pretty soon, you know, it's tough enough to be up there. People are going to shut you down and shut your ideas down. So you have to, be, I had to be very strategic in what I said and how I said it. But that was a great learning lesson for me because I didn't want to become shunned. I wanted to be able to have a voice because I had great ideas. And so I had to do a little introspective work on myself and uh, it played out well. So, so Roseanne, can I ask you really quick, were you ever actually shunned? Like, did you, or, or, or maybe not shunned, maybe that's kind of harsh and extreme. Were you shushed and kind of silenced? And if so, how did you overcome that? Uh. I wouldn't say that I was overtly shushed or shunned, but I can say that there was kind of the feeling of it. So I just made sure that I stayed professional 
and tactful and didn't go into the mode where I would be called uh, witchy and or the proverbial, oh, she's just being a female kind of thing. So I, I was very cognizant of that. But hey, that's made me a better leader in how I recognize how to control myself. And at the end of the day, that's the only thing I have control over is how I respond to things. All right. So we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. There's one more um, comment I just want to touch upon real quick. Then we're going to get into your special pro projects. Uh, in regard to our women on women hating thing we talked about earlier, uh, Johnny says women are fearful and get territorial feeling that they are competing against you when in reality it is not true. You are only competing against yourself. Roseanne, on a broader lens for California, what efforts are being made to build leadership, emotional intelligence, and growing line-level leadership for law enforcement officers versus higher-ranking personnel? There is research that shows that the better educated our employees are, the better they will engage. So, so yeah. this is going to bring you bring us into your special projects, I'd imagine, too, some of the things you're working on. Yeah, so some of the things that I work on, I'm an adjunct faculty with the National Command and Staff College that teaches law enforcement, all kinds of different law enforcement across the nation. And one of the things that we, uh, we predicate some of our leadership uh, training on is the utilization of emotional intelligence and we bring in neuroscience and how things affect your brain and how, how you work, not just the traditional, this is a democratic leader, an autocratic leader. And we get, we provide that to all levels of training to everybody, not just once you've made it to, you know, once you've made it to a sergeant or lieutenant, you've already lost years where you could have been building those skill sets to get there. So in my personal business, the ritual group, I do executive uh, coaching and consulting and, and women in leadership. And I start from the ground up because if you can start to build those capacities early on, then you have nowhere to go, but to continue to grow. Why are we playing catch up in the past? It's always been a reward to go to some sort of leadership school. It shouldn't be a reward because you did something good or nor should it be a punishment, right? I'll show you, I'm going to teach you how to be a leader. It should, should be, be the standard. It should be it the standard. Be standard and something that's integrated into the culture. And I believe a lot of uh, organizations are starting to see that and they're starting to embed that. And you have people like Johnny who, who teaches that at J&J Consulting and her uh, and what she does and what I do at the Ritual Group, because we recognize you have to start growing your leaders from the day they come on the job, not when they get selected for the position. All right. Great response. In about two minutes, maybe a minute, 90 seconds, Tell us what's important to you. Tell us what's passionate and how do we follow you and keep in touch with you? So what's important to me is being able to uh, just recognize, listen, everybody's out there trying to make it. And if you have the experience and you have the ability and you have the authority, then help people get to where they want to go, especially if they deserve it. You know, um, for me, how do we follow? How do we follow you? You can follow me on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn account. Um, you could follow me on uh, my Facebook account at Roseanne Ritual at Facebook. Yep, I have her name. No E after the S, too. I learned that the hard way. No yeah, E after the S. And -N -E. and then my last name, make sure the E and the L are spelled correctly. People invert those. Uh, and then you could go to my website, ritualgroup.com. I have four books that I've written. They're all in various stages of publishing right now. I'll be releasing here shortly. Uh, my book on landing a promotion, 25 nuggets of wisdom that will be coming out uh, here shortly. I have a couple of journals. So uh, I also have a podcast called resurgent. You, the you is right after um, resurgent. You can find that on Spotify and iTunes and it's a limited series, 17 uh, points on leadership development. And there are 10 to 12, 10 to 15 minutes. And they're only meant to, uh, ignite your passion and give you just a, just a food for thought. So that's me in a nutshell. Well, that's outstanding folks. And again, that was a lot, but you'd expect a lot because we, the people, the caliber of people we're going to have having these difficult conversations are people that are they're genuine um, butt kickers. They're going out there and they're getting things done. So the best way to follow, um, follow our guests again, connect with them on LinkedIn. I feel like that's the best way, but also like, like Roseanne said, you can catch her on Facebook. I know that you're also on Instagram. 
Uh, definitely get in touch with with, with, with with Roseanne and hit her up with your leadership questions. This is what she's passionate about, and this is what brought us together. So, folks, we've come down to it. We're, we're, at, we're out of time. And I want to thank everybody for taking time away from their families, away from their activities to join us tonight. This has been another outstanding conversation with all kinds of nuggets of info. If you like the show, please like us, subscribe to us, and share the content with all the people in your lives that need to hear these difficult conversations. So, Roseanne, again, thanks again for um, for stopping in and being with us tonight. And for everybody else, we appreciate you. Keep coming back, and we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Hashtag supply the why. <laughs>